Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of the Gospel of John, chapter two. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. They're going to be killed because the people are going to hate them, these two prophets. And then in three and a half days, a breath of life is going to come from God and they're going to be raised from the dead. And we know that Matthew tells us that the earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints that had fallen asleep were raised right after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they appeared to many. So that could very well be the harrowing of Hades where John the Baptist is pulled out and Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so these final two witnesses, the new Elijah and the new Moses, John and Jesus, and Jesus, so all this could be going through his mind. If he was sitting under the fig tree, which is a shady, thick leaf, a great place to sit and study scripture. So Jesus said to Nathanael, do you believe because I told you that I saw you under a fig tree? Oh, you're going to see greater things than these. Very truly, I tell you, you're going to see heaven opened and angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. He predicts for Nathaniel, you will witness the ascension, my ascension back to the Father when my mission is complete. Now, the wedding at Cana, it is on the third day. We just talked about that with Abraham. Third day is a big, powerful day, a resurrection day, a new creation day. There was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was also invited to the marriage with his disciples. It's the third day. But we were counting John's days, and four days had already passed. So after four days, now it's the third day. So four days plus three days is seven days. So it's on the third day, and it's also the seventh day. Oh, right? Where else in the Bible do we count days? Yes, creation, way back to in the beginning, which is how John started his gospel, hailed right back to Genesis. There was a lot of day counting going on in Genesis. First day it was good, second day it was good, third day it was good, fourth day it was good, fifth day it was good. Sixth day, God created the beasts, the wild beasts, and it was good. But also on the sixth day, God created humankind in his own image, male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said, it is very good, very good. So also, after the six days of creating, on the seventh day, God finished his work and God rested. That is complete covenant perfection. All the work of creating was gone. God blessed the day, hallowed the day, and God rested. This is that full communion with God. Total rest in the Trinity. That's rest. That's eternal rest. When we're back into that beatific vision with the Trinity and that perfection of rest, that's day seven. On day seven, it's a new creation. It's a new rest in God. Now, if you were going to be a Bible number, would you rather be a six or a seven? And those of you who have studied long enough with me know, would you rather be a six or a seven? I want to be seven. Good, good. God created beasts on day six, but we're made for day seven. We're made for that total Sabbath rest with God, that full communion with the Trinity. 
That's where we know rest on day seven. That's what we lost in the Garden of Eden when we got banished. We can't rest until we fully get back to that. Because that's what we were created for, to share in his divinity, to be divine partakers, to be partakers in his divine life, the divine life of the Trinity. And until we have that, nothing's going to satisfy. Nothing. St. Augustine knew this. He said, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, until we get back to that. Now, when the wine failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. They have no wine. This is a Jewish wedding. Do you know how long a Jewish wedding lasts? Seven days. Seven days, no wine. Could you imagine having a Catholic wedding with an open bar for seven days? <laughs> I hope you got a big checking account. So in a Jewish wedding, the couple stands under a hoopah because they are a new creation. And it has four poles, north, south, east, west. They are a brand new creation. And they are a new Adam and Eve, and they're creating a new household, a new family. And they, all the people go around them seven times for each day of creation. And they have seven blessings that they say over the couple. And there's much symbolism. They are a new creation. Now, Noah got a chance at a new creation. God destroyed the earth and let Noah try again. But an early thing that Noah did in his new creation, it was a new garden, and he planted a vineyard, and then he drank too much wine. And then you know what happened. King Melchizedek of Salem, this is the eternal priesthood that Jesus is part of, immediately in Genesis 14, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. The psalmist tells us, praise the Lord, you who bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the human heart. Feasts are made for laughter. Wine gladdens life. So you don't want to run out of wine at a wedding. And Mary noticed, she was the first to notice that the wine is running out and the embarrassment to this couple. Mary knows our needs before we do. That's why when you pray the rosary and you're praying for your kids, you might not know their needs. She does. They might live in another state. You might not even quite know what's going on in their life right now. Mary knows. Trust her. Entrust your kids to her care. She's their mother. She knows. Mary intuits the needs of all her children before we even know what our needs even are. Women in general are good at intuiting need of others, especially your own children. It just is something innate in our nature. But Mary knows she is our spiritual mother, and that's why Pope Francis goes to her every place he's at, because Mary knows, Mary knows, Mary knows the needs of her children. Mary intuits the needs of all her children before we even know them. Now, Jesus knows something, and he knows that there's going to be no turning back if we start the hands of time, Mom. She says, the wine has failed. And no picture will do this justice, but I imagine their eyes just locking. If we start this new creation now, it's day seven, and it's the third day, and it's the seventh day. And if we start this new creation now, Mom, it's a done deal. There's no turning back. Are you sure you're ready for this? God drove man out of the east of the Garden of Eden and placed a cherubim with a sword flaming to guard the way to the tree of life. 
So we couldn't live forever with mortal sin on our soul. Jesus knows he's going to be the new Adam who opened the way back to eat freely from that tree of life again and to drink from the river of life, which is the Holy Spirit, to have communion with the Trinity again, what we're born for. Jesus says, I'm the way, I am the gate, I am the bread of life, I'm the new tree of life, I'm the living water, I'm the river of life, it's flowing from my side, the Holy Spirit. It is time to crush the head of the serpent. This is why he came. So Mary said yes to the Father's word, be it done unto me according to your word. Mary's going to be a true helpmate to Jesus, like a new Eve, like what woman was created for, what she was pulled from the side of man for, to be a helpmate to man, a true helpmate. The final blow to the head will be delivered here by Jesus on the cross. But Mary will not leave his side. She will be with him every single step of the way. She will be a true helpmate. She's the new Eve. She'll undo all the disobedience of the old Eve because she is in perfect obedience. The synoptic gospels don't even record this story, but tradition holds it is the first public miracle of Jesus Christ. It happened in Cana. It's four and a half miles northwest of Nazareth. The name Cana comes from an extensive root cluster, a root verb. And the verb means to acquire, to produce, or to create. Cana means to create. Ah, this is a recreation in Cana. It's also used in Nehemiah as a verb that means the redemption of slaves. Why did he come? To set us free, to emancipate us from Satan. And it also is the line in Exodus that describes God as redeeming Israel from Egypt this verb Cana, and it's also Nathaniel's hometown. We only know about that one place in the Bible, John 21. Nathaniel came from Cana. So Nathaniel, I just told you, you're going to see greater things than this. Let's go to your hometown. There's a wedding. And Jesus said, Nathaniel, just because I saw you under the fig tree, oh, you're going to see greater things than that. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. They couldn't fellowship with the divine trinity anymore. But while they were still in communion with God before the fall, they had absolutely everything, perfection of contentment. They didn't need anything else. They're in total communion with the Trinity of the living God. They don't need anything else. But when they did not trust God's word, they lost everything. But God in his mercy, even after they lost all they had, Adam clinged to his wife like never before. And they became one flesh. Ah, now this marital clinging was very good because it imaged the physical communion that they once had with God the Trinity. So this is a very, very, very good thing. And this is why Satan hates holy marriage between man and woman to this day. He hates it because it images God the Trinity and he can't stand to look on that. So he undermines it every chance he gets. But When the man clings to his wife and they become one flesh, guess what happens? Ah! In Genesis 4, now the man knew his wife. They clung. They knew each other. His wife Eve, and she conceived, and she bore Cain, and she said, I have created a man. I have produced a man. I have acquired a man with the help of the Lord. What is this blessing? So Cana means to create to acquire, to produce, okay? And Eve has canid a man. Acquired, produced, created, made. God has allowed them to be co-creators of an eternal soul with him. That's a gift. It fulfills his first commandment that was be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. 
and subdue it. So here in Cana, to create or recreate, it's on the seventh day. Mary and Jesus, the new Eve, the new Adam, find themselves at a wedding, God's primordial sacrament, first sacrament in the Bible, before the beginning of time, God knew about marriage and the spousal clinging into one flesh that was going to happen. And we got these two spiritual spouses of a new spiritual marriage. And their personhood matters. He's a man and she's a woman. And this new marriage between man and woman is going to be very fertile and multiply into many, 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 many spiritual children of God over the last two millennium. Jesus is our firstborn brother. He's our spiritual sibling. Mary is our spiritual mother. He's the new Adam. She's the new Eve. In Luke, we learn about Mary as the new covenant, also in Revelation. Here, Mary's the new Eve. He looks at her. She looks at him, and she says, the wine's empty. The wine has failed. They're out of wine. They have no wine. And Jesus said, oh, woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Mom, do we have to talk about this right now? I mean, can't we just have fun at the wedding? <laughs> oh, woman. What have you to do with me? Now this phrase, woman, he's not being disrespectful at all. He's hailing right back to Genesis 2. So that was the universal title of Eve. She was woman. She was woman, woman, woman. Eve was called woman. God said to the woman, the woman, the woman, to the woman, even after the punishment, it was to woman. She doesn't get named until Genesis 3.20 when Adam names his wife Eve because it means the mother of all the living. So when Jesus calls his mom woman, what is he really saying? He knows who he is. He's the beloved son of the father, and he's the firstborn of all creation. And if he now says yes to this, he's going to become the new Adam. And that's going to make Mary the new Eve. And what does that mean? It means that their life is going to be forever changed for them and for all of us. What have you to do with me? And in Aramaic, I like it even better. What is this between us? What is this between us? What is this between us? They're both fully human, and God has entrusted to them an incredible mission possible. Not a mission impossible, a mission possible with his grace, and it's going to be grace upon grace upon grace. If we start this now, woman, mom, there's no turning back. Are you sure? Are you ready? If we start this now, the Father's mission for us advances. and We can never go back the other way. There will be no turning back. In good times and in bad times, no turning back. Till death do us part, no turning back. Do we trust God's word? Do we trust God's word? What is this between us? And she says... <laughs> Do whatever he tells you. Yes, we trust God's word. Yes, I trust his word. Do whatever he says. Do whatever he tells you. Then woman, the clock starts now. My sister, my bride. That's from Song of Solomon. Do you see how Mary is my sister? Because we're all 
anyone that's human is a sibling of Jesus Christ, and she's going to also be his bride. She's the hinge pin. She represents the old covenant of Israel, but she also represents the new covenant of Jesus Christ. She's right in the middle. She's my sister and my bride. It's a spiritual marriage, and it's his first sign, and there's going to be seven of them, a perfection of signs, but each sign is going to tell us something about who Jesus really is. And in this case, he is the new Adam, and he is the new bridegroom who's soon going to remarry widowed Israel when he, God, in the second person, dies on the cross. He's ready to untie his sandal. She's the new woman, Mary's the hinge pin. She's the new Eve who will stay at his side until the bitter end, no matter what. In obedience to the fact, like Abraham, that yes, she can trust God's word. Be it done unto me according to your word. I trust it, I trust it, I trust it, I trust it, I trust it. And I'm not leaving his side. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, why did Jesus say, my hour has not yet come? Really? Because you're 30. And that's the age of priesthood. And no, you're not a Levitical priest, but you're a priest in the line of Melchizedek. But I think Jesus had human dread because he's fully human. In Luke's gospel, he said, oh, I came to bring fire to the earth. Oh, wow, I wish it was already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized. But oh, what stress I'm under until it's completed. Yes, he feels stress. Yes, he feels anxiety. Yes, he feels dread. In another garden, not Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Agony, he tells them, Peter, James, and John, oh, just pray that you never have to come into your time of trial. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. I'm dreading it. I don't want to do it. But not my will, but yours be done, Father. I trust your word. But he prefers the hour not to come. It's human dread. Do we have to start it now? In the Garden of Agony, he's sweating tears of blood. That's how much he dreads it. Okay, mission possible. Here we come. Now, there were six stone jars. Seven? No, six. The old Jewish purification jars. The old covenant. Six. They're standing there for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. They're big jars. And Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. Remember what you need to recreate, water and the Holy Spirit, the breath of God. They filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the steward at the feast. So they took it. And when the steward of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from. But the servants knew. The steward of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And then when the guests have drunk freely, they give the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. 180 gallons of the best wine. This is an overflowing, abundant amount of wine. This is not a physical intoxication as in Noah's garden of a new creation. This is a sober intoxication, a spiritual intoxication of the spirit of the living God. Amos the prophet had predicted that when Messiah comes, the mountains are going to drip with sweet wine. It's going to be abundant and all the hills will flow with wine. Yeah. Cana. Recreation, day seven on the third day. And that wine is good, good, very good, excellent wine. It's Eucharistic wine, and it's still flowing to this day. It's never run out. It's an abundance. 
You can have this wine every mass you go to. This is the blood of Christ every hour around the world. There is the everlasting flow of Eucharistic wine, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. It's still flowing. The cup that poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And Jesus did this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, day counting is over, and now we're on to feast days, and we're going to our first Passover. It was the Passover of the Jews. It was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. John's Gospel is going to give us three Passovers. The synoptics only give us one each, and theirs come at the very end of their accounts. But John puts his in chapter 2 for a reason. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, doves, money changers, seated at tables, making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple. John's very descriptive. The whip of cords, only John has it. Sheep and cattle, he drove them all out. He poured out the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. He told those who were selling doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered what it was written. Zeal for your father's house will consume me. Zeal for your house consumes me. Where do we find that in the Old Testament? It's a psalm of David. It's a prayer for deliverance from persecution. And if the hour has started, then let the persecution begin. The Jews come and say to Jesus, right now, at this moment, what sign can you do? Show us, show us, what sign can you do? What sign can you do to show us? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews, the Jews said, well, this temple's been under construction for 46 years. And you're going to raise it up in three days? Three days? Really? Because it's cost us a fortune to build. And in 46 years, we've been working on it with Herod's accountants, and we're not even done yet. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed in the scripture. They believed in the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, why does John put it here? And scholars have wondered for years, because everyone else, all the synoptics put it at the end. It's the final Passover where he clears the temple. Why does John put it so early? Because John's not chronological. John is theological. John's the eagle. He doesn't care about chronology. Jesus teaches about his Eucharistic blood at Cana, So in this same chapter, he will teach us about his Eucharistic body, the temple, the body and the blood. This is a Eucharistic chapter. This is a foreshadowing of the institution of the Eucharist that's coming in John 6. What was the purpose of the temple anyway? Always to house the true presence of God. That's why it was. That's why they had the tent in the wilderness. That's why they built the temple so they could put in the Holy of Holies, they could put the Ark of the Covenant. They could put the true presence of God in the highest, holiest place on the face of the earth. They've spent 46 years for absolutely nothing. Why? Because the true presence of God isn't even in their big fancy pants temple. Because Jeremiah hid the Ark in 2 Maccabees 2. When the Babylonians were going to destroy the temple, he took the Ark of the Covenant and hid it, and it's never, ever, 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 ever been found since. Even Indiana Jones can't find it. So there's no true presence of God in the temple at the time of Jesus Christ until he's 40 days old and Mary and Joseph come walking into the temple and they have the true presence of God in their hands with two little pigeons. And Simeon, full of the Holy Spirit, says, now I can die. Now I can die. 
Let your servant go in peace. I've seen salvation. I've held salvation in my arms. Let me die now. This is Messiah. He knows by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the true presence of God is back in the temple again when Jesus is 12 years old. And he was lost from his parents. And the elders are listening to this 12-year-old kid. And they're going, oh, how does he know this stuff? Who's his rabbi? How did he learn this? This is astonishing. Why? Because the true presence of God was back in the temple. That's where he belongs. That's why he said to his mom and dad, didn't you know where I'd be? The true presence of God is always found where? In the temple. Duh. (laughs) Woman, come on. Zeal for his father's house consumed him then too. And zeal for his father's house when he's 40 days, when he's 12 years old, and now when he's 30 and coming into the age of his priesthood, the true presence of God was standing there on the temple mount. He is the temple. He is the true presence of God. He is the holy of holies. He is the tabernacle. And the next time in scripture that Jesus calls his mother woman is at the cross. Because the new Eve will not leave his side. She's pulled out of his side. And water and blood, when they spear him, splashes on her face. And it's the water of baptism. And it's the blood of the Eucharist. And she, as a good mother, is going to wash her babies, us, in that baptismal font. And she's going to feed us, her babies, her son, his flesh. He's the new Adam. And often under the cross, you'll see the old Adam's skull. If you go to the Holy Sepulchre, you'll see there's a chapel of Adam right directly under the cross of Calvary. He's the new Adam, and she's the new Eve. The new Eve has been pulled from his side. She's a true helpmate. She's going to bathe us in the river of life, her spouse, the Holy Spirit. She's going to feed us from the tree of life, her only son, Jesus Christ. This is a consummation that happened at the cross of their spiritual marriage. And then a bride, a church, was conceived here in the upper room on Pentecost Day by the overshadowing again of the Holy Spirit on Mary and the 120 gathered. This bride and this bridegroom have been very fruitful over the years. And Paul understands it in Ephesians 5. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery. And I am applying it to Christ and to the church. Satan, the thief, and the liar hates holy marriage, and he hates a holy church. He wants to rob us of the truth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you. Mary, thank you for being the new Eve, the mother of all the truly living. Jesus, thank you for being the new Adam, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn of a new creation, our brother. Thank you for the church. Thank you for taking this bride, for laying down your life for her. May we be an obedient church. May we be a loving spouse that gives of ourself as well. Thank you, Jesus, for being our bridegroom. Thank you, Mary, Padre Pio. Pray for us. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. That was part two of the Gospel of John, chapter two, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.